Will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7? Revelation 7, we'll read verses 9 through 17. Listen particularly to how the people in this heavenly vision are dressed, as it will have relevance for our text tonight. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in this temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's turn now to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua... On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Amen. You may be seated. I've mentioned before how the prophets very often not only tell the truth, they show it. There's a difference, a big difference between showing and telling, right? That's kind of what we experienced this morning. I I preached about salvation by grace alone through faith alone from Romans. Then we had the Lord's Supper, right? And that was showing us some of the same truth that I had just told. Only now the Lord was showing it to us in a uh, visible, physical way. The same thing happened tonight, witnessing the twins' baptisms, right? The Bible tells us the gospel. Baptism shows us the gospel. But even within the Bible itself, even in the written word, there are elements of both telling and showing. And books like the letters of Paul, those tend to be more oriented towards telling in general. Not all, but mostly telling oriented. The prophets, on the other hand, often major on showing the truth. Um, As I said last time, I think a picture is worth a thousand words. Yes, but a word picture is much the same way. Um, And this is especially true of Zechariah with all these visions that we've been studying over the past couple of weeks. God didn't just tell Zechariah the truth. He showed him the truth through these visions. We have a special opportunity tonight in particular because in God's providence, we've come in Zechariah to chapter 3 at the same time that in the morning we're studying Romans 3 and 4. And what Zechariah is showing us in this chapter is very closely related to what Paul has been telling us in his letter to the Romans. And I hope that you'll see some of those parallels as we go along. And if you haven't been with us for morning worship, that's okay. It's Romans 3 and 4 are talking about justification by faith alone. And we're saved not through our works, but as a gift of God that we receive through faith and only through faith, not through anything we do for God. Okay. Let me give you this outline for chapter 3 tonight. First will be the high priest's dirty clothes. That's verses 1 through 3. Uh, the verse numbers may be correct, incorrect on some of the outlines you have. So verses 1 through 3, the high priest's dirty clothes. Verses 4 through 7, the Lord's gifts of grace. And then verses 8 through 10 will be the servant yet to come. So the high priest's dirty clothes, the Lord's gifts of grace, and the servant yet to come. Okay. In verse 1, then, Zechariah brings us into the heavenly courtroom. The angel of the Lord is sitting there as the judge. And in this case, we should think of the angel of the Lord, this angel of the Lord, not merely as God's messengers. This is not just a created angel. This is a visible revelation of God himself. Um, I don't think it's too much to say that this is, in fact, Christ before the Incarnation. And the reason I say that is because when this angel of the Lord speaks in verse 2, Zechariah tells us, the Lord said. So when the angel of the Lord speaks, it's the Lord speaking. This is a visible revelation of God. There are a couple other characters in verse 1. One of them is, of course, Joshua the high priest. 
And this, is, uh, he's, this isn't just a, a symbolic man. This is the actual historic high priest who was working with the governor Zerubbabel during this time to lead the people in the rebuilding of the temple. It is the man that the returning exiles would have looked to for spiritual leadership during this time. It would have been his job to organize the sacrificial ministry at the Jerusalem altar, to protect the purity of the new temple under construction. And it uh, is a really important position of leadership. It was the high priest, after all, who was supposed to offer to God the sacrifices that atone for the people's sins. He was supposed to help people maintain ceremonial cleanness. He was supposed to teach people how to live according to God's law. But the problem in this scene is that there is this third character in verse 1, Satan. The name Satan literally means either accuser or adversary. Word, In fact, the word accuse at the end of the verse is almost identical in Hebrew to the name Satan. It's the same letters. Uh, it's just a verb instead of a noun. And so what, what Satan is doing in this courtroom scene is he's acting as the prosecutor. He's the prosecutor. He's trying to point out the sinfulness of Judah's high priest. And imagine what a victory that would be for Satan. If he can accuse the high priest, if the high priest is disqualified from carrying out his job, where does that leave the rest of the covenant community? The rest of the people are going to be in deep trouble because then who is going to atone for their sin? Who is going to keep the temple holy as a place for them to meet with God? If the adversary, the accuser, can successfully prosecute Joshua, it is going to be a disaster for everybody. And so, um, at the outset of the case, things do not look very good for high priest Joshua. Verse 3 says, Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And filthy, that's a pretty gentle translation of it there. One lexicon says, filthy or be foul as with excrement. I'll say that lightly. I'm just I'm trying to get across here that we're not just talking about clothes that he's worn for a few days and that just kind of need a wash. We're talking about a clothing situation where something has gone horribly wrong and the high priest's clothes have been covered in this revolting foulness. And there he is standing in the presence of God in court being accused by Satan. A hopeless situation to be in. You would think. Now, I'd like you to connect this in your mind with something we studied a few weeks ago, the end of the book of Haggai. I was going to reach back, just one book, just a few pages. Uh, Haggai chapter 2. All right. Uh, remember that Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying about the same time, at, or at, about, at, the, at the exact same time, about many of the same things. There's kind of a dynamic duo that come together in the book of Ezra to tell the people they need to restart rebuilding the temple. In Haggai chapter 2, you remember, Haggai talked about how it's easy for something unclean to defile something clean, but it's not so easy the other way around. And it's that one commentator I quoted said at the time, um, a dirty hand will leave a dirty mark, but a clean hand won't leave a clean mark. Right? Um, it's easy to transmit defilement. 
It's not easy to transmit holiness. You remember how the sinfulness, the, the corruption... Oh, it's a big one. I remember how the, the corruption of the covenant people was... Let's reset here. Uh, remember how the, the, the corruption of the covenant people was um, threatening to defile everything else that they did. Anything good coming out of the return from exile. Even, even the efforts to rebuild the temple were going to be defiled by their sin. So if things were just up to them, left up to them, the temple wouldn't be able to cleanse these people because they would actually defile the temple with their sinfulness. They'd make it useless, useless for approaching God in a holy way. It comes down to that basic issue. How can a sinful people approach a holy God? When even, when even their holiest leaders are guilty and defiled. The people who are supposed to be there to, to mediate, to go between them and God. What is going to happen here? It seems hopeless for Joshua and hopeless for the people. Well, Haggai at the time, in Haggai 2, he didn't spell out how this was going to work exactly, but he did offer hope in that chapter. He said, here's how your uncleanness works. But in spite of all that... What is God going to do? He's going to bless them anyway, in ways they did not deserve. And Zechariah is now taking us into the heavenly courtroom to show us not just that God is going to bless his sinful people. This chapter is giving us a little more insight as to how our holy God is going to bless his sinful people. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? See, rather than simply saying, um, oh, you're right, Satan, he is pretty filthy and just executing judgment, which God could have done. Instead, God is taking the initiative here. He's taking the initiative to provide for a different outcome. Joshua, the high priest, he says, is a brand plucked from the fire, just recently brought back by the Lord's sovereign grace and power from Babylonian captivity back to the promised land. The Lord did that. The Lord plucked this man out of the fire of captivity and brought him back and put him in this position of leadership. And now that he's there, well, the Lord is not going to give up now. The Lord is going to follow through on what he has been doing. The Lord's not going to stop carrying out that plan of sovereign grace he has begun. He's going to continue and he's going to see it through. He's going to see to it that this high priest he's provided for his people, however inadequate he may be, and he surely is. This man is going to carry out the work that God's people need. and God is the one who's going to see that gets done. So, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And then he turns to Joshua and he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. God is arranging for Joshua's filthy clothes to be gotten rid of. And instead, God is going to give purely as an act of his grace, 
He's going to give Joshua clean clothes. Now notice what Joshua is doing all this time. How active is Joshua in this scene? Joshua is just standing there. Joshua doesn't say anything. Joshua doesn't do anything. And the point of that is that all of this is happening at God's initiative. This is God's work. Not Joshua's work. I love Isaiah 61, verse 10, where that prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. and My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. That imagery of clothing represents God's gift of cleanness and righteousness to somebody who on his own is unclean and undeserving. But God takes that sinfulness, that corruption of that person away and he substitutes for it instead his own cleanness, his purity, his righteousness, his holiness in the place of that corruption. You see, then, how Zechariah is showing us here just what Paul was telling us this morning. Going into verse 7, you find another gift from God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. God is granting Joshua the right to be in his presence and therefore to serve as the people's representative in his priestly office, something he could not um, uh, Yeah, well, we'll go without this for a second. Um, something that uh, Joshua wasn't going to be able to uh, muster up on his own. Um, He couldn't have this right of access uh, on his own. Uh, The Lord is providing this right of access for him, which is uh, good news for for him. So my notes have frozen up a little bit. We're just going to keep going here. Um, Okay, so... um, So we have uh, the Lord... um, then, yeah, I'm not used to this happening. I apologize. So I'm going to reset and try that again. Okay. Um, after this, so the Lord is giving Joshua this right of access. He's saying, you're going to be allowed to stand here in my presence. Do you understand what a big deal that is? Because um, ordinarily, uh, this would be a very exclusive place, the presence of God. You can only be in God's presence if you are holy. And Joshua himself is not holy. He could never gain admittance. He could never say, here's my ID. You should let me in. No, he's only going to be admitted if the Lord says, I am going to let you in. You belong here by my invitation because I have stationed you in this place where uh, you belong in my service. Okay? Now, We go on, though, to see that this is only the beginning. The Lord is pointing Joshua 
and those around him beyond themselves. He's saying, you are here for a purpose in your own time, but you, in fact, are here to be a sign of something coming later. Okay? Something coming later. There are men who are a sign. Okay, so everything the Lord is doing for them in their day is pointing beyond them to this future destination. And so he says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. For behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will... Remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine, under his fig tree. Okay, now not everything in that section is equally clear. There are some difficult images there, right? For example, the stone with the seven eyes. What does that mean? And you might read a couple commentators and find a couple different interpretations. And you think these can't both be true. When you come to a circumstance like that in the scriptures, there are a couple options. One is to start speculating, to get preoccupied with the less clear parts and to think, oh, we've got to figure out what this means and we've got to come up with maybe an outlandish explanation of what this symbolism is all about. What's a much better instinct, rather, is to focus on what is clear, to focus on what is clear, which is what gives meaning to the whole. Um, And uh, what is clear is that God is acting here on his own initiative. That's one thing. God is acting here. And he's acting through a servant that he's going to send, a servant who's going to be called the branch, recalling other prophecies about the branch that's going to come from David's line, this messianic idea, a Christ to come, a son of David. And whatever the stone and the eyes are, what's very clear about that image is that God is writing the inscription. In other words, God is giving meaning to these events. God is the authoritative interpreter for these events. And then you look at the special act of grace then that God is going to do in this future time when the servant branch comes. He says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And I'm not going to beat around the bush here because I think it's just plain for us from a New Testament point of view. This is not hard to figure out. When was it that God removed the iniquity of his people in a single day at one stroke? And the answer, of course, is in the cross of Jesus Christ, who died so that our iniquity could be taken away, and so that the Lord would not treat us as our sins deserved, but instead would wash them away and give us in their place those perfect robes of Jesus' righteousness to cover us. Think about this. We're drawing to a close here. Think about this, that the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus as your priest, is everything that Joshua wasn't and could not be. The Lord Jesus could do everything that Joshua couldn't. Joshua needed forgiveness. He needed cleansing. Jesus provided it. Joshua lacked righteousness. Jesus was the righteous one who achieved righteousness for us and supplied it for Joshua and for his people today. Joshua began in dishonor, but ended wearing the turban crown of glory. Think about Jesus, though. Jesus possessed from the beginning all of the honor of heaven, didn't he? 
He is, in fact, if I'm correct, and I believe it stands to the exegesis that this is Christ himself, the angel of the Lord, standing here as Joshua's judge. This is a picture of his heavenly glory, in fact. And yet, what does Philippians say? He did not selfishly hold on to that glory of heaven, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. And as Ian Duguid reminds us, you see that crown of glory, the turban of glory placed on Joshua's head? Remember what Jesus was wearing in that moment of humiliation upon the cross was a crown of thorns, moving from honor to dishonor for us so that we, along with Joshua, might move from our dishonor to share in his glory. The authority that Joshua gets in this passage, he receives that from Christ. Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the access that that Joshua gets here, he gets as a special permission. But Jesus has that access by right because this is where he belongs, on the throne of heaven. See what Jesus has done. He's our great high priest, a high priest so much better, so much better than Joshua. And he's given us access. Access to the very... Presence of God, covered by his blood, wrapped in his robe of righteousness. Access to God's very throne room, which is where we are gathered even now, in this living moment. Gathered together in the holy presence of the one who has taken our filthy garments of sin and disposed of them forever wrapped us instead in a righteousness that we could never earn. That is good news for the people of God. And what a blessing for the Lord, not just to tell us that, but to show us that good news in so many ways, one after the other today. Give thanks for that as you go to sleep tonight. And remember this day, and this gospel. Let's pray. Our great God, we're thankful for the way you have taught us the gospel of your free grace, and we're so thankful for the way you have illustrated it for us. And this wonderful drama of Joshua and his dirty clothes being traded for your perfectly clean ones. We're so thankful that you have done that for us in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has taken away our robes, our filthy robes of sin, and given us in their place his perfect obedience. Lord, grant to us the faith to lay hold of these promises and to live by them as your loyal, faithful servants claimed by Christ throughout this week and the days to come and into eternity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.